This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Danny Parker is here. We will begin. Uh, I have to apologize, uh, as I do most days, for not being Lori Lamont, uh, who wrote this introduction. And I'm just going to read Lori's introduction. So what you should imagine, it's sort of a nested narrator situation where uh, it's in my voice, and yet it's Lori's voice that should be coming through. It's a very complicated literary um, move. So uh, <clears throat> this begins, greetings, welcome, which is just like Lori, she greets you and she welcomes you both, and so we'll, we'll go on from there. Uh, a word first about the origin of this scholarship forum. We, as an English department faculty, realized we were not taking the opportunity among ourselves and our students to share the creative and scholarly projects and investigations we work on outside of class. So we created this series so that we can appreciate and engage in each other's passions and studies. This is why we're here. Some of these presentations are of finished work. Others are presentations of work and study in progress. Tonight, we hear from professors Tom Carraway, And Casey Andrews. We, did, we forgot the applause meter. Uh, who are in distinctive but connected ways working with literature of witness. Lori actually retitled this whole thing, Exploring the Literature of Witness, which wasn't on the posters, but it's a bonus for you here tonight. Um, and I lost my place. I asked. I, so I is Lori, follow you, so this is a complicated literary piece. I asked each of them to give me a sentence, me, Lori, a sentence or two describing their projects, and I'll cite them directly here for you from Tom. He says he's working on an emerging theological line of inquiry known as theopoetics, which posits that a freshening of theological reading is necessary. Through this, we may be able to view scripture and creation with new eyes, move toward more inclusive, complete, and intuitive understandings of God. A potential source of this fresh view can perhaps be found in poetry of witness, poems written from places of danger, trauma, and tragedy. Tom will also explore some examples of the ways we define poetry of witness. Lori was looking forward to this part in particular, so we're recording it. That's it says that. Uh, Tom's talk is an exploration of research supported by a Weyerhaeuser Center summer research grant, by the way, from Casey in his own words uh, tonight. So now I'm f Fred as... Lori as Casey in literary, okay. Tonight's lecture emerges from my book project that would be published in May 2017 by Northwestern University Press in their series, Cultural Expressions of World War II. The book is called Writing Against War, Literature, Activism, and the British Peace Movement, and is the first scholarly study to combine the resources of peace studies and literary analysis to consider experimental novels by peace activists of the 1930s. The research agenda also includes an article in progress about Vera Britton's Christian pacifism, as well as a new book project about British soldiers, nurses, chaplains, and journalists whose experience of the First World War led them to write pacifist and anti-war literature. A version of tonight's lecture will also be the basis for my lecture tour as part of the Humanities Washington Speakers Bureau in 2017-18. So on the flyer that advertises this event, there's a single hand raised. You might have seen it. Uh, for this subject matter, I think this is a perfect image of both simplicity and enormity, an image and symbol that is without ambiguity but not without complexity. To this is, you really need Lori's voice here. To testify, to tell what one has seen, to tell the truth, to take an oath. For the poet, 
the artist, the writer. That oath is to recover one's language and humanity from the oppressor who has subverted language to dehumanize and silence, who has subverted language to eradicate culture, family, hope, even faith. Before we begin with Dr. Casey Andrews, I want to share the ending of a poem that I've been thinking of to include in this introduction as soon as Casey asked me to introduce him and Tom and moderate questions afterwards. This might seem to you an unlikely connection, but it isn't. I hope you carry the last two lines with you from this evening and beyond. These are from Amanda Dreams, She Has Died and Gone to the Elysian Fields by Maxine Kuman. Uh, this poet died in 2014. Her spare poems speak deeply for the complexities of life. This poem is one of the Amanda poems. Amanda was one of her horses. And she raised horses and she wrote beautifully about them. In the poem, the speaker comes out to the field to see Amanda carrying a carrot, quote, from which I have taken the first bite. And this is an act which establishes a unity between them, an equilibrium and equality. Amanda is old, this horse, and she can't get up for the carrot. And the speaker feeds it to her, and the horse takes it, uh, this is the quote again, takes it as loose-lipped as a camel. So an old horse. And the last lines are these. I'm going to read them to you twice. So Lori told me I should read them to you twice. She also said, don't read them too fast, Fred. <laughs> we sit together. We are heart and bone. For an hour... We are incorruptible. We sit together. We are heart and bone. For an hour, we are incorruptible. Please welcome Dr. Casey Andrews. And after that, we'll have Dr. Tom Carraway. Well, thank you, Lori Fred, for that great introduction. Um, I, I always feel like um, life would just be better if every day um, Lori Lamont said wonderful things about me in public. So I'm just going to plan that for the rest of my life. Every day, Lori Lamont talking about me nicely. Um, it's what it's like to be in a class with her, too. So um, tonight's talk, uh, as uh, I mentioned in that introduction, um, is connected to the book project that I've been working on most explicitly. and. Um, I just note that this cover image um, is the image that will appear um, as a central piece of the cover of the book as it comes out. And um, I, I just want to make a little shout out to this because this was um, a painting that was done by my wife and the press accepted it as a submission. My wife is sitting over here. Um, so you should thank her for the beautiful artwork that happens. Um, it's a family affair that we're having here. Those are white. Um, poppies for the peace movement, which was the symbol of uh, the peace activists of the 1930s in Britain. And then there's inscribed in the background the pledge that was taken by many members of the Peace Pledge Union, which was the largest pacifist organization in the 1930s, and um, also was an organization many of the writers I've worked on have been a part of. So there's a little connection for that background. There are essentially uh, three main points that I'll be working through tonight, and I'll try to signal those with the slides. And, and the centerpiece of this does really connect with a lot of things that Tom has been thinking about. It's, I'm so sad Lori is sick tonight, because um, Tom and Lori and I got this opportunity to sit down together and talk through these issues that have mattered a lot to us about the concept of witness. And so a through line I hope you hear and can talk to us about afterwards is how we're all sort of thinking in different ways about witness as a concept in literary studies. So the first question that I'm pursuing in this work that I've been doing is to think about 
how is it that um, a, a literary work, a piece of art, can be clearly political, can have a message to it, and yet also still remain artful, can, can be something that is rich and complex and nuanced. And, um, and this was a problem that the writers that I've worked on all felt. They all wanted to write complex pieces of writing, and yet they also wanted their works to be explicitly anti-war. And this is something that I, I find, you know, um, actually today in literary studies, that question is not as much on the forefront. But um, even yesterday in my literary theory course, uh, a student, we were talking about the definition of literature, what makes something literature. And someone said, well, I think from the readings we're doing, basically literature has to be useless. You can't have something that has a point to it or it somehow is not literature in the same way. It's why a cookbook isn't literature, because it has a use in it. For these writers that I'm looking at, I'm very interested in the ways that they attempted to make rich, complex literature that was also still very clear about having a message that was anti-war and how to do those things in a way they could, they could countenance. Um, there was a lot of writing and other kinds of art that happened in the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars that was not so concerned with being very deeply um, artful. They just wanted that message to be clear. Um, I'll just point out one of these authors, someone with the improbable name of Theodora Wilson Wilson, um, who uh, <laughs> I guess just like the name Wilson so much, she did it twice. Um, and she was actually known as TWW, so TWW, who was a Quaker, and she wrote tons of these kind of um, wonderfully covered um, books about things like the boyhood of Jesus, very didactic, preacherly texts. Um, but she also, as a Quaker, was deeply invested in the peace movement and wrote um, several novels, including ones that I wish I had covers to show you because they're, they're awesome, but I couldn't find them um, in my office. But there's a picture of her. The title of these books, two books published in 1916, one called The Last Weapon, A Vision, and then its sequel, The, Last, the Weapon, Unsheathed. And these are science fiction fantasy novels about Jesus coming back and destroying all guns. Awesome. Um, but, <laughs> but not stuff that you would probably get on a syllabus, not something that we think of as anything that's more than just kind of historically interesting, not great literature in the sense that we might want to think about it. Um, so this was a, a kind of refrain. The person that I, I often go to as a sort of touchstone for this problem is Virginia Woolf. She's a centerpiece of the book I've written and um, a lot of my research. And Woolf, in the 1920s, um, has one of the strongest statements about this problem of how to have literature um, that is distinctly literary and not just some sort of political didactic message. Um, so in 1924, she writes this essay called Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, and she attacks all of her older contemporaries, um, people like H.G. Wells, who, um, if you know of Wells today, it's mostly as a science fiction writer, things like um, The Time Machine and that sort of thing. That really wasn't what he was as much famous for in his day. He wrote tons of social problem novels like Anne Veronica that basically you read and you're supposed to go, yes, suffragettes, they need the vote, get the vote for women. And that's all the book is really about. And Wolf just nails these people. These are the most kind of famous people in her day. And she writes this about them. She says of these books, yet what odd books they are. Sometimes I wonder if we are right to call them books at all. For they leave one with so strange a feeling of incompleteness and dissatisfaction. In order to complete them, it seems necessary to do something, to join a society, or more desperately, to write a check. Um, <laughs> that done, the restlessness is laid, the book finished, it can be put upon the shelf, and need never be read again. 
So she says these problem novels that teach you something about how to be better in the world, how to be politically engaged, she says these aren't really novels. I mean, they may be purposefully good. She actually you know, was very much in favor of the, the messages of some of these books. But she says these are, not, these are not great pieces of literature. And so throughout the 1920s, Wolf is really the kind of, of at the forefront of trying to create literature that is rich and complex and has a politics to it, but not a clear message. And so, it's very interesting to me to find that by the 1930s, Wolfe, like many other people in her, in her circle and in, in Britain, start to feel what Wolfe called the lure of politics. This feeling that you could no longer be an artist or a, or a, a writer and not engage with the biggest, most pressing concerns of the day, which for most of these people was the feeling that another war was coming. By the early 1930s, um, Hitler comes to power in January of 1933, but even before then, there's a feeling that another war is going to be happening. And these writers all felt they needed to do something about it. Um, Virginia Woolf, in February of 1931, um, she was a meticulous diarist. She has, we have all of her diaries that she kept, and so we know all of these things that she was thinking in most of her days, and also who she had dinner with, and also mean things she would say about them afterwards. This was typical Woolf. Um, so Woolf was having dinner with her friend Aldous Huxley, who is pictured here, Aldous Huxley, um, who a year after this would publish Brave New World, which is what he's mostly known for. Um, Brave New World was the end of Aldous Huxley's far right-wing eugenicist phase. That book is often taught as this kind of very liberal um, thing about um, not having a planned society. That's not what he thought it was. He thought it was a book about the perfect society, which was um, cut out all the bad people and keep all the good ones. Um, but Huxley himself was undergoing this sort of conversion experience in this period, February of 1931. And so Wolfe and Huxley having dinner together with their spouses. Um, at the time that this dinner is going on, apparently Wolfe was just feeling very guilty because Aldous and Maria Huxley were going around the world and were pronouncing things in public um, all over, in America and parts of India. They were sort of saying, here is what a good society could look like. And Wolf, this person who had been so resistant to these political ways of thinking, feels herself to have lived a life that has not been public enough. And she says in her diary this wonderful statement. She says, I feel like I have lived like a weevil in a biscuit her whole life. Or to translate that into American, a bug in a cookie. Okay, So she feels like her life has been just sitting there nibbling on things that she likes and not really engaged the way that Aldous and Maria Huxley have been engaged. And this is such a fascinating moment of change in Wolf's thinking about how to write because, because at the same time she's writing this, she also starts into this novel that's going to be her most explicitly politically anti-war novel. Um, and while she's writing this, she writes in her diary comments like this. She's wrestling with the novel and she says, I have the burden of something that I won't call propaganda. I have a horror of the Aldous novel. That must be avoided. So her friend Aldous Huxley, that she's a little jealous of because he's so politically in, um, in public, she also is saying, but I don't want my writing to be anything like his. It's crap. Um, so she has this sort of tense relationship here, all the while not realizing that Huxley himself is undergoing this conversion and is working on what would be his most avant-garde novel, most difficult, complex novel that is also explicitly anti-war. And so it's a piece that comes out as Eyeless in Gaza in 1936. And there's this thing that I've been working on is this kind of recovery of all these people that knew each other, even were having dinner together, working on the same intellectual problem. How do you have explicitly anti-war writings that are still rich, complex literature? and they appear not to have known the others were also working on these things. It's this fascinating, unspoken community that is working in the background here. 
So these writers are the ones that I've focused on. I'll mention a couple of them as I do this talk today. The book focuses on five of these writers, and then I've most recently been working on um, this author, Vera Britton, for this article on Christian pacifism. Um, but this group all knew each other. They all show up in each other's diaries, and they're all reading each other's works, and they're having dinner together, and they never know that they're working at basically the same kind of project. So the way that I'm working into this is to think in a couple of different ways about how they try to address this problem of having very politically engaged but still artful art. And the way that I'm um, framing this is with this concept of witness. So literature as a piece witness. Um, this term, literature of witness, is something uh, that Lori Lamont has worked on. Maybe some of you have even taken her poetry of witness class. Um, this comes back to a poet named Carolyn Forche, who's a, a writer, writer today. She is um, a published poet in her own right, but also has produced these two anthologies, one from 1993 called Against Forgetting um, that has Poetry of Witness in the subtitle, and then one called Poetry of Witness that covers 500 years of this kind of poetry that recently came out. What Forche says is that while she was trying to create this anthology, she wanted to have writers that she would say were poets of witness. And she began collecting them up, and she realized that basically any major 20th century poet at some level is witnessing to experience. And so she kind of got stuck. Like, she couldn't include everyone. So her principle of inclusion became who were the people who themselves, the authors, actually did experience things like torture or survivors of genocides like the Holocaust or went through war. So their bodies had to have experienced this thing in order for them to count as witnesses. And so she uses that as her principle of, of inclusion. For some of the writers I've worked on, that still holds true. There are a couple of these writers for whom war was a firsthand experience. And so I want to say a bit about how they have, have worked. Um, the first I'll point out is, again, Vera Britton, who I've been very invested in. Um, so Vera Britton is one of my recent heroes. Um, Britton, um, who I would guess is less well-known to this room than it would be in, in, um, in England. She's still a very well-read author there. But um, Vera Britton means so much to me. Um, in fact, uh, had my one-year-old been a, a girl, we were going to name him Vera. Uh, this is how much I love Vera Britton. Um, we love Vera Britton. It was an all to me. Um, so, uh, so Vera Britton, um, her story is that she uh, was a nurse um, she was a volunteer nurse who went into the First World War really excited about the war effort, felt like this was a really important thing to be involved in. And she was so excited about it, she convinced her brother and her fiancé to also enlist as soldiers and join the war effort. And um, two of their best friends, who were men, joined the military and also went into this effort. And all four of those men were killed in the course of combat in the war. And Britain initially went through this, and after four very close deaths, she basically said, well, now she has to kind of double down. This means so much, we have to fight to the finish. But she had this bizarre experience. She was a nurse who was sent on, in the Western Front to um, be sent to a unit that was nursing German soldiers, so enemy soldiers that were brought in. And she was caring for all these men, holding literally men as they died. Men who she realized were only in this condition because men like her brother were sent over to shoot them. And so she found the absurdity of the situation so intense that it changed her whole perspective on war. And she ends up writing um, this memoir called Testament of Youth, which is the big, often read book, um, by, mostly by English um, high school age kids. Um, but 
Uh, but this, this work becomes kind of her way of making a claim against war. It's this massive bestseller in England, hundreds of thousands of copies. She becomes incredibly famous, and through the rest of her life is this major peace activist who increasingly becomes Christian as she does this. So what she does in this book is very much says, I went through this thing. I want to tell you about it so that this doesn't happen to you. Um, and if you're interested and don't have time for a long war memoir, there is a movie that just came out um, with Alicia Vikander playing Vera Britton and Kit Harington as her, her uh, uh, fiance. So um, it's a little less romantic than that picture makes it out to be, but still a decent movie. And uh, if you want to know what I have to say about it, you can Google me. Also, not much to do with Harry Potter, even though it says that at the top, just so you know. Um, so um, this, uh, this piece of work, Britton says in 1930, um, has an essay that includes this statement. And I, I think this really sums up well what she saw her project being. She says, the decline of enthusiasm for pacifist movements, the growing strength of aggressive nationalism, the setting up of dictators in one after another of the states of Europe, all these testify to the failure of our ceremonies, our war books, our peace propaganda as yet to bring about that great reformation which they set out to achieve in the hearts of men. How to preserve the memory of our suffering in such a way that our successors may understand it and refrain from the temptations offered by glamour and glory, that is the problem which we, the war generation, have still to solve before the darkness covers us. That statement, I think, is just gloriously written. She basically says, we need to, um, to preserve this memory of suffering in our works. If I can tell you what my body went through in the war, maybe you won't have to experience that too. This idea of witnessing from her own experience, a big piece of what Britain does in this early phase. Likewise, another person I've written a lot about, though, more with his fiction than his poetry, which I don't have time to talk about tonight, but his prose is amazing and less well-studied than his poems. But this is Siegfried Sassoon, who was himself a soldier. And his story is very complicated, too, but he went through the war and ultimately became a kind of anti-war poet out of that. And he says in this poem something, I think, that also captures this poetry of witness concept. So he says, do you remember that hour of din before the attack? and the anger, the blind compassion that seized and shook you then as you peered at the doomed and haggard faces of your men? Do you remember the stretcher cases lurching back with dying eyes and lolling heads, those ashen gray masks of the lads who once were keen and kind and gay? Have you forgotten yet? Look up and swear by the green of the spring that you'll never forget. And apparently, on stages throughout the 1930s, um, Sassoon would go up at these anti-war rallies and quietly read this poem. And Vera Britton herself in her letter says, um, my nose was red and my eyes were running, hearing him quietly declaim this poem. All these people saying, no, we will never forget what happened. And yet, World War II still happens, right? This kind of work only goes so far. Simply saying, my body went through this, I don't want yours to go through it, is not quite enough. And there are many other modes of witness that I think happen. There's one other that I kind of want to get to before I turn things over to Tom in a moment. Um, but this kind of witness is very much the Fourche version. I've been working on another dimension of this sense of witness. And the thought that I've been having is that um, another way we can think of witness is actually to draw a bit more in theological notions of witness that involve um, witness as sharing your beliefs, your convictions. I think that um, we all recognize at this point that um, when one says, I'm going to share about my faith in some way, um, if what you mean is, I'm going to yell at you until you have the same faith as me, um, that tends, 
if it's convincing at all, it tends not to be convincing for very long. Um, that what I'm interested in is the ways that certain writers really saw this notion of witness as relational, as something that required the reader to be actively, or the audience, to be actively engaged and participating in listening and joining in this so that these things go down very deep, instead of being something where you're bludgeoning the person into being convinced by something, which is kind of the effect at times of Sassoon's poetry, which just says, look at these ashen faces and the ugly, nasty things I've seen. Ah! That doesn't always make someone um, as resistant to war as some of these other kinds of works. So witness as a relational element. This brings me to my third and final point here, um, and that is to think about how literary form, how the structure of these stories is the way that these writers brought in active readers and got this kind of relational witness to occur. Okay, so to start this third point, uh, I'm going to say my most controversial thing that I'll say all night. Uh, it's, it's just Whitworth edgy, not real world edgy, but it's Whitworth edgy. Um, so uh, I, I'm going to say something slightly critical about C.S. Lewis. Are we okay with that right now? I know this is Whitworth. I know this is a little dangerous. I gave this talk uh, out in Moses Lake, and I said, thank God I'm over here because the lightning won't strike me if I'm that far away from um, Whitworth. I know that here, uh, Lewis is like the fifth gospel writer. You must believe everything he says. Um, so if this is going to bother you, you can put your fingers in your ears and hum for just two minutes, okay? Um, we'll go on. So um, a couple summers ago, I was reading with uh, my, uh, at the time, five-year-old, um, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, yeah? Read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Who's read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Enough of you that I'm going to go ahead and give the plot spoilers I'm planning to give anyway. Um, so Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you recall the story, it culminates in this kind of big battle in which the Jesus lion, Aslan, fights, um, plot spoiler, um, fights with uh, this witch and her minions. And my five-year-old, to his wonderful credit, oh, actually, I have that, so... Yeah, cute kid pictures late in the talk. It's the way to keep you engaged. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Arlo, my, my five-year-old, uh, he, we're getting towards the end, and he can feel that things are changing in the battle, and he starts getting anxious, and he says, um, he says, is, is the witch going to die? And I kind of had to say, I mean, yeah, he, she's going to die, and he got sort of concerned. I said, can I just keep reading? And I did, and I don't know if you recall this, but reading with that in mind, the witch dies in a very um, kind of uh, quick and sort of simplistic way. There's like one sentence embedded in a paragraph where basically Aslan kills her, boom. Okay, now we're on to other things. She dies so meaninglessly in some way that my son started crying, and I was having to comfort him. like, oh, good bedtime story, Dad. He's crying, and like, <laughs> like, why does the witch have to die? And what he said was, and this is so great, to his credit, he says, how come she had to die? Edmund didn't have to die. Edmund is the bad kid, remember, who betrays everyone, and Aslan gives his life for Edmund. There's some penal substitutionary atonement in there I don't care for, but there's a beautiful element of um, the lion dying for the love of this person who had sinned. And the witch doesn't get that same grace. And my son was, to his great uh, theological and moral credit, very, very concerned about this. And what he said, and this, I, I, this is too great to even be just me making it up. This is so amazing. He said, I, I think what should have happened is that Aslan should have pushed the witch back through the wardrobe so she'd come out at the beginning as a nice kid again. Isn't that the best piece of fan fiction you've ever heard? It's so awesome. I, I'm so in love with it. I love my son no matter what he says. Even if he said, kill them all, let God sort them out. I still love him. But um, this made me feel uh, even more endeared to my child. And 
Uh, and so um, this idea of, of doing this, incidentally, Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite theologians, has a great essay about C.S. Lewis and um, says that one of Lewis's greatest failures is his inability to imagine a nonviolent and therefore Christian universe in the Narnia world, that it ultimately rests on violence. And so um, my son, though, came up with the ending Hauerwas couldn't come up with. Um, so what, I, what I'm using this anecdote to present is just to say that, um, yes, there's sort of a plot-oriented thing. You could change the ending. But the key for me is that what would happen if you had the witch do something different, you might not be able to end with a big battle. The structure of the story Lewis would have to tell would have to be different. The, the narrative structure, the form of the story would change to make it a nonviolent story. And my son found that ending. Um, for writers that I've been attending to, um, there is something like this going on. Ways of thinking about how the narrative you tell enacts a kind of nonviolence. So Virginia Woolf, again, I'll end with her. Um, Woolf uh, wrote uh, this book, Three Guineas, published in 1938. It was one of her most controversial. And one of the most controversial elements of it is she says um, at one point that, you know, there's all of these people with like rah-rah nationalism, militarism. And then there are all these peace activists which she was a little skeptical about, peace activists who are yelling, no, no, peace. So you have war, war, peace, peace. She says, that's just replicating the peace activists who are shouting, no, no, no war. They're just replicating what the violent militarist side is doing, but just saying a different set of words. What she says would actually stop this is studied indifference. She urges women, especially, to be indifferent, to say, if we just ignore, in a studied way, the kind of militarist nationalism that we hear, that actually undermines it much more than yelling, no, I hate your war, I love my peace. And so she has this notion of indifference. Again, very controversial point. I don't, don't have time to get into the kind of the political controversies here. But I think this is actually a guide to how she tried to write her novel, The Years, which is closely connected to Three Guineas. It was published the year before, but they started as, as the same project and kind of branched at some point in the mid-1930s. Um, so The Years is a, a family saga novel. It starts in 1880. The last chapter is 1935, it's called Present Day. But each chapter is a different year. And what she does in this long history of Britain through this family is she does things that signal something to the reader to say, this is a really important year. But she never gives you the most important historical moment. She always goes to one side of it. She enacts a kind of indifference to the big historical event that you should think would be the centerpiece of a chapter. So I'll just mention one chapter where she does this. So 1914, there's a chapter with that title. And you would expect a 1914 chapter that's set on a single day in 1914 to be set in the summer, to be set in August, as the, the guns of August are starting to roar and the World War uh, is beginning. But she doesn't. She begins the chapter in spring, and she writes, it was a brilliant spring. The day was radiant. Even the air seemed to have a burr in it as it touched the treetops. It vibrated. It rippled. In London, all was gallant and strident. For readers, probably still today, but certainly for readers in 1937 when they're reading this book initially, to see 1914 and to hear a phrase like, London was gallant and strident, that word strident meaning sort of militaristic in its, in its presentation, all readers would know that they need to actively engage with this. So she's not telling us about the war. What is she telling us about the year of the war? We readers need to be actively engaged, relational with that text, and we then have to do some work. What she's calling attention to is not the explosions going on in the trenches, as some writers did, but instead about all of the ways that the society that she is depicting is invested in promoting war, even in subtle ways that we don't always realize. So that our active participation means we might notice 
the militarism that we are all kind of complicit in. So I'll end with this. Um, for the writers in the 1930s, the big thing that they were concerned about was future war. They all knew a war was coming. They thought it would be just like World War I, but with things like bomber planes, which now means civilians are no longer civilians. They are, they are in the line of fire. They didn't have great concepts, most of them, that there would be something like Nazism that would do what it did. There are ways they didn't have that historical foresight. But the great fear was future war and the feeling that if you can just get into why Britain went into war in the first place in 1914, you might be able to undermine the future war that's coming. And I think, despite the fact that those books didn't stop a war, they still have a lot of resources for those of us who live in this day and age in which we live in kind of perpetual war, never-ending war, and ways that these novels might call us to be attentive, active witnesses to those subtle ways that we participate in a never-ending culture of war. I'm going to turn this over to Tom Carraway now. Thank you all for listening. We're just going to trade the jacket, but decided. Tom didn't think it went with his tie. working? Yes. Excellent. Uh, this is from research very much in progress. Uh, so if you're expecting the same level of polish and excellence uh, as Casey just demonstrated, um, there's cookies. <laughs> um, So my talk tonight is, there should be a title slide, I skipped straight to the joke. Uh, the, the title on the poster is Poesis, the language of creation, um, and I frequently lost sight of that while I was preparing this talk. Um, so I will, at various points, um, try to stop and say, oh, see here, this is what that title meant, um, and, it, and it will hopefully be relevant. Um, and I start with this uh, joke because this research has taken me uh, into uh, this, uh, you know, strange and foreign to me world um, of theology, a world in which I have no training uh, and really no academic background. Uh, so hence the disclaimer. Um, I am also, for brevity's sake, not going to dwell too much uh, on the theology of the folks I'll be introducing um, but am very interested in continuing uh, my understanding um, and in uh, uh, developing a shared understanding 
uh, of perhaps how these theologians are working. Um, I came to this term, theopoetics, uh, through um, a text message, actually, one day. My friend uh, Dave Harity, uh, who's a poet in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, um, just sent me a text. And the text was the word theopoetics and a question mark. And that was it. Uh, there was no follow-up. There was no context. It was not germane to any discussion that I thought we had been having. Uh, just this word. And now, Dave, some of you have met. He was on campus a couple years ago. Um, it, it, it's fair to say, without impugning him at all, that he's a strange fellow. Um, and so this is the sort of text message that you sort of just take in stride, right? Um, and like a good uh, academic, uh, I thought the word was very interesting, right? Theo, um, I, I've, I've got that. Poesis, that's what I do. I'm a poet by training. Um, so the confluence of these two things uh, was very interesting, and so I Googled it, right? Uh, Fifteen minutes later, I text him back the word yes. What I discovered in that 15 minutes uh, was a group called the ATRE, the Association of Theopoetic Research and Exploration. Uh, they are a study group, essentially, of the American Academy of Religion, I believe, the AAR, um, and uh, have developed over the last, um, at that time, several months. They hadn't even really been very organized um, for, for over a year. Um, and they were a group of theologians who were in seminary um, who were discovering uh, these... Um, theologians from throughout the 20th century. Uh, and here are a few of them and some of the things that they say. Um, what these theologians are primarily interested, drawing on um, many traditions, and this is where my lack of theological training um, will certainly um, be revealed. Um, in that, this seems to me uh, very fresh and exciting and like a as I said, or as Lori Fred said in the introduction, uh, a new line of inquiry, right? In fact, it is probably the first line of inquiry, just as it, as it has been um, in, in literature, uh, which is the problem of readership and how we respond to text, right? When we read something over and over and over again, we develop uh, not a new understandings, but familiar understandings. And pretty soon those familiar understandings become understandings that only reinforce what we believe, right? Or what we already believe, or what we've been told to believe, right? So these theologians are seeing in the middle of the 20th century um, the, the problem of, uh, one, uh, major uh, kind of shifts in trends in philosophy and the way that philosophy uh, is being received. Um, this kind of echoes throughout all of the artistic world. Um, we can see it early um, in the 20th century um, throughout modernism and the high modern period um, and into the abyss of postmodern thought, which is 150,000 different things, not one thing. Um, but also culminates uh, in the 20th century in the, the, the sort of death of God argument, right? Um, and so a lot of these theologians are responding um, in part um, to those discussions. 
Um, and what they're looking for, what they're after in the middle of the 20th century, all the way through to today in this new working group uh, of, of theopoetic um, theologians, um, are ways that we can return to reading scripture with awe, right, with delight, with reading scripture and being able to see the magnificence of God, right, uh, which in passages that we've read or been told or heard since childhood might make it a little more difficult, right? When we hear certain phrases, um, we know what comes next, right? And uh, as, you know, really anything, um, we happen to tune that out, perhaps, to some degree, right? Um, and we lose a measure in that tuning out of mystery, of magnificence, of uh, in other words, the, the glory of God's creation, right? And so what Theopoetics is primarily interested in is a way to freshen our perspective, right? Uh, a way to um, break through our received understandings, uh, certain key phrases you just have to write down because they're so good, but then you have to refer to them in your notes so they're less effective. Uh, Something that has a recontextualizing effect that breaks through our received structures um, and uh, dogmatic certainties um, is how um, Khalid Keith Perry, um, one of the primary organizers of uh, the ATRE, um, writes in his book, Way to Water, um, a primer on theopoetics. Um, and he says something important, I think, that, that is worth uh, quoting directly. Um, because a lot of what happens when we, when we talk about things like this um, or, or when these discussions, even as they were happening in the mid-century, um, was that the demythologizing of Scripture, which is what Stanley Hopper is calling for, the demythologizing of Scripture often leads to a sort of nihilism, right? And sometimes there's a long road to get there, um, but essentially um, the, the end of that argument is um, that without the mythology, then it is stripped of meaning, right? If you strip out all the ceremonies, if you strip out all the cultural understandings, um, that a, a sort of nihilism is the effect, right? Um, and Keith Perry says this, um, I want to encourage people to give up thinking that understanding scripture is something that can be done and completed as a finished act, rather than seeing Augustine's uh, Crede et Intelligus, uh, sorry, um, as the model of faith-seeking understanding where people of faith are on some safari hunt for meaning with reason as their gun, it becomes an immersive experience in which reason is used to situate oneself within a process of tradition in which past and present are constantly fused. Fused not so that our contemporary thought is burned out to some pre-modern naivete, but so as to allow for a renewed sense of the source in which the tradition might be pointing. A renewed sense of the source. Right, what he's looking for there is not so that we can read those familiar passages as though we had never read them, right? but so that we can actually hear those passages. We can read those passages and recontextualize them into the current context of our world right? so that we can use them, so that we can see them for what they are, right? evidence of God's creation, evidence of God's love for humanity. Right? Now, this is a tall task. Um, this is a difficult thing. And, and here is where my interest in the subject um, has, has come in, the use of the word poetics. Um, now, they're using it in, in two ways. One, in the 
sort of uh, original definition from poesis, um, which is creation, right? Um, but it is from this sense of creation that we also get the second instance of the word, which is our more contemporary understanding of it, which is the poetic, right? Um, now, there's an interesting thing that happens in Way to Water, and I think that it is in some part um, related to some of the issues that uh, Casey's talk touched on in the, in the interwar period. Um, that is, if you, were, if you were writing something for a specific purpose, then that purpose tends to override other considerations, right? And this is a real problem if you're trying to get people to not do a certain thing, or if you're trying to get people, in the case of this particular book, uh, to see poetry as a way to God. What happened was that uh, Keith Perry, um, and, and this is a pretty small, tight-knit group, right? And so my crazy friend Dave Parody, who texted me the word theopoetics originally, uh, was asked to write poems that essentially uh, demonstrate what Keith Perry is talking about in his book, right? So at the end of every chapter, um, tacked on, if you will, um, to the end of every chapter, sometimes with a blank page between them. So they're fully separated, not at all integrated. There is a poem written by Dave Harrity. Now, Dave Harrity is a fine poet, and these poems are, by his own admission, bad. <laughs> right? They're, they're not at all interesting. Um, they are uh, often dogmatic. Uh, the imagery is dull. Uh, the rhythms are non-existent. Um, and they're just not, you know, compelling. Um, and this is a conversation I've had with Dave, so I don't feel at all bad telling you about this. Um, and I'm not even going to read them. That's, that's not nice. Um, <laughs> but the rationale that, Cal, that, that Keith Perry used um, was sound, that we want to be able to say or to show, look, here are the things that we love or want to love, poems, doing the thing that we want them to do, right? So, so this is where my issue with what's happening in theopoetics begins to take place and what has fueled my current research, um, which is this, that these theologians are very, very good at theology, right? I, I trust their analysis. I trust the authors that they're including. Um, I've, I've gone back and read a lot of the, the primary uh, material um, that they're referring to, and it's good. They're not taking it out of context. They're using it effectively, and they're making very smart, sharp points. What they're bad at is poetics, right? Um, a, a kind of real, not failure to understand uh, necessarily, um, but just a, in the same way that I am naive about theology, they are naive about poetics. Their training is in one field, um, and my training is in the other field. So what I would like to do um, is find a way or to find a body of work that actually does the thing that they're looking for, right? Um, now, it's fair to ask uh, a, a question. I have other slides. Um, I should show them to you. Uh, this is the, the, it's actually a good time. Um, the, the goals of the Theopoetic Working Group, um, as I said, demythologize scripture. Um, to see both scripture and God with fresh eyes and to recontextualize our understanding, uh, therefore, of faith. Um, 
Now, something I've been asking myself throughout this uh, entire process is, okay, but how do poems do that? How does a poem help me read scripture in, with fresh eyes, right? Now, it helps um, that, that I haven't been a believer for terribly long. My childhood was not filled with sermons, right? Reading scripture is still very exciting to me because it is still new to me, right? I have very little slash none of it memorized, right? I can recite like any theme song from a show made between 1978 and say 1992. Don't test me on this. Um, but given the opening notes, I could probably do a lot of them, right? Um, but memorizing texts is, is something that, that has just never come easily to me. Um, even so, uh, when I'm reading passages that I've read before, um, they, they are fresh to me. They're still exciting and interesting and invigorating, right? Um, so how can reading poetry then get other people? My wife is, is, is not that way, right? Her, her upbringing uh, was one of um, church and youth group and more church and Sunday school um, and small groups and youth groups and, and all of the things that, that probably most of you know so well. Um, and when I get excited about a passage and I, I take it to her and sh she just recites the next four verses and I'm like, well, you're killing it. <laughs> like, can I have a moment here? This is really exciting. It's like, yeah, John won. I mean, come on. Um, so how can poetry uh, do the thing that uh, theopoetics is asking it to do? Um, and we might back up just a little bit and ask, why poetry? Why this focus um, on this one particular kind of writing? Um, and I mean, as a poet, I will just tell you, because it's better. Um, it's the best kind of writing. Um, but, but more precisely, um, and perhaps more uh, you know, scholarly, um, is, is, is this, which is that poetry at its most basic level is language distilled, right? Um, and it's not generally just language, but experience, right? And it's distilled for, as Casey pointed out uh, in, from classroom discussion, for no other purpose, right? It does not have use. It is not utilitarian. You get nothing from reading a poem, nothing practical, that is, right? Uh, what you get instead uh, is what Keats called negative capability, right? The experience of reading a poem uh, allows you to enter the experience of another person, right? And this is where poetry of witness comes in, right? Um, that, that through reading, uh, we are able to experience the distilled experiences of others, right? And through this, we get a renewed understanding, not just of ourselves, but of our context, right? And this is why poetry of witness becomes so important. Uh, and I have, yeah, some things. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of other reasons uh, 
why we might look at this body of poetry um, in particular uh, is, are some of the things that, that Casey pointed out. The, the, definition, the def definition that Carolyn Forche um, has developed um, and that also uh, Lori Lamont herself um, has, has contributed to. Um, and, and Lori's not here, so we can talk about how awesome Lori is without her kind of waving us off. Um, but, but Lori is probably one of the countries, if not the world's foremost authorities on poetry of witness. Um, this is not a body of inquiry with a vast amount of scholarship, right? Um, and, and Lori would say that she's no scholar on the subject, but she can recite Rosevich and Milos and Akhmadova um, and pretty much any poet um, in the canon of poetry of witness um, has sort of developed from Forche's anthologies. Um, you know, and, and, and talk at length. If you've had Laurie's Poetry of Witness class, um, you can attest to this. Um, so, uh, so her definitions, uh, which, which we actually have, um, uh, can, can help us understand why Poetry of Witness uh, is so important um, as a vehicle um, for uh, theopoetics. Uh, and one of the things uh, that, that we might notice um, or, or recall is uh, Melanie Duguid May's uh, point about what theopoetics can do. Um, and, sh and she says, and it was a couple slides ago, uh, that, what does she say exactly? It's probably important to get that one right. To tell the truth about life is to participate in the realization of God's revelation. that again. To tell the truth about life is to participate in the realization of God's revelation. Um, and, and so just for fun, um, I'm going to read uh, a brief section um, from this little magazine called Rock and Sling. Um, now, Rock and Sling is a magazine um, that's probably, I mean, obviously the best magazine in the world. Um, several of you have worked on it. I'm the editor of it. Um, so if you need more evidence, I'm happy to provide it, but you shouldn't need any more. Um, when we got Rock and Sling uh, here at Whitworth uh, now six and a half years ago, um, they, you know, <laughs> put me in charge of it. Um, and it was a, at the time, a, a journal of art, literature, and faith. There was also uh, Relief, a journal of faith, literature, and art, and Ruminate, a journal of literature, art, and faith. All of the Christian magazines were using some iteration or some combination of those words. And I said, well, <coughs> perhaps we can come up with something else. And I really had no idea what. Um, I had a lot of conversations with Doug about it. He had no idea what. But Doug, being the smart guy that he is, said, ask Lori. Um, and so Lori had already agreed to come on as poetry editor. Um, and I presented to her the problem of our subtitle. Um, and she said the word witness. And Rock and Sling became, at that moment and since, uh, a journal of witness. Right? And Lori provided this definition for the masthead. The editors of Rock and Sling believe that the act of writing and of reading Literature is a way of witnessing to the truth of experience, drilling down, <coughs> excuse 
excuse me, to the core of language's vitality and accepting an understanding of artistic language as a kind of testimony. The word witness means to testify, to tell the truth. The compulsion of the word is bracing in its charge to the writer to understand that his or her work matters not just as an expression of experience and response, but as an active language engaged morally as well as aesthetically. To tell the truth is an act of responsibility as well as an expression of hope. To testify is an act of courage as well as an expression uh, of faith. And what we're looking for whoops, is to tell the truth about life uh, as a way to participate in the realization of God's revelation. Um, so, so that's my, uh, we won't use the word tenuous link, um, but that is the, the sort of linkage in my thinking uh, between these two subjects, right? <coughs> um, from Fauché's introduction to Against Forgetting, the first anthology, uh, which came out in 1993, um, of poetry of witness, uh, she says, humility brings the poet before an ethical tribunal, a place where the writer must recognize the claims of difference, the otherness of others, and the specificities of their experience. The language of religion therefore becomes quite important in the supposedly secular century, for religion traditionally makes claims for universality and unimpeachable truth. So we can see there, hopefully, uh, the echoes, or at least the answers, um, to the questions that Theopoetics is asking. It is in within this body of literature um, that we might begin to experience the sorts of negative capability um, that can freshen our eyes to break down those uh, received structures and dogmatic certainties um, so that we can see not just uh, scripture or Christianity with fresh eyes, uh, but as uh, Ruben Alves, a uh, Brazilian uh, theologian, clarifies uh, from Amos Wilder, who believed that theopoetics would reinvigorate Christian life, Alvis clarified, no, theopoetics can, uh, can reinvigorate all life, right? That it's not necessarily just about focusing on being better readers of scripture. It's on being better humans, right? Um, and, and those two things probably uh, have um, a lot in common that we should pay attention to. Uh, so... So that's then how we get to uh, some examples um, of the, the power of traditional poetry of witness. Uh, this is from the poem Dolce e Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen, um, one of those World War I poets that Casey was talking about, a contemporary of Sassoon, um, who died in the trenches. Uh, but before uh, that, uh, this uh, poem, and this is the concluding stanza of the poem, uh, can give us a little bit of insight into <coughs> Uh, the, the power of, of, of witness. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling, gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce e decorum est, pro patria mori, right? Sweet how sweet and fitting it is to die for one's country, which is the sort of dogmatic propaganda um, that was being used to kind of fuel the run-up to war, right? Um, and this is a pretty uh, uh, graphic example, right? Owen writing from the trenches of World War I, this is the experience, right? 
blood gargling from lungs, uh, their tongues swollen with sores, right? This is what it's like. Um, so we get from that a little bit of what <laughs> Casey was talking about with Sassoon, uh, where he kind of just yells at the end. Um, this poem is certainly uh, has, has that kind of um, strength to it. Uh, but it also, in some ways, might reveal uh, a little bit of a, uh, a way to complicate Forche's definition, right? Uh, Forche, uh, as, as Casey said, had to come up with some sort of uh, methodology um, for not including every good poem ever written, right? What is witness? What is experience? If a poem just records experience, is it to be included? Uh, Forche had to say no, um, so she clarifies and said, poems written from a place of danger, right? Across danger, experience, right? This is from the, um, the original definition of the word. Um, and we might want to complicate that a little bit, right? Um, because it would certainly be fitting to make the argument um, that not all trauma comes from war, right? Um, and so this is kind of where, or, or comes from, uh, you know, atrocity or disease or disaster, um, from, from places um, of, let's say, very overt um, complication, from overt danger, right? Does the poet's life actually have to physically be threatened in order for the poem to authentically represent dangerous experience, right? What do we mean by dangerous experience? Um, what do we mean by trauma, right? Uh, so one thing that, that we might do um, is maybe expand our definition a little bit, and I'll get to that um, kind of in my closing. The second important thing uh, to remember uh, from Forche's definitions of poetry, of witness, um, is that it is actually the responsibility of the reader to serve as the witness, right? And, and this is a key to making the connection back to theopoetics, right? To making that full, negatively capable leap into other experience. Right? Because if it's our responsibility to read about these traumatic situations, to read about um, these dangerous places and these awful things, then we cannot be passive. Right? We cannot simply be receivers of information. And this is, again, why poetry and not other forms of communication. Why not prose? Right? We are certainly familiar with the utilitarian ways that language has been employed in recent years. Right? And this isn't really a new pro problem, um, as we saw um, you know, from some of the propaganda that Vera Britton was, was you know, in part responding to and other um, peace activists, um, and, and kind of where he closed, um, was that um, language is used for ill intent all the time. Right? It's, it is used for heinous reasons. The, the, the rhetoric of um, a lot of contemporary society um, is toxic. Right? And poetry is a place that is not concerned with utility, where language is distilled once again back towards magnificence, at least back toward power. Right? That there is, in fact, authority in language and power in words and the arrangement of them. And poetry, I would say, is where that happens most clearly and most effectively. Right? Certainly most artfully. No offense to the really beautiful prose writers. Um, but it also puts this responsibility on the reader um, to, to be the witness. And the poet then is acting as 
conduit between experience and the reader, right? The actual witness. Um, and this is a tremendous responsibility to which the, the passage below uh, refers, uh, but also is a way toward that negative capability that, that both the, the Keats indicates um, and that uh, is, here's the definition of it, uh, Roberto Unger um, defines as uh, it is through negative capability that we can further empower ourselves against social and institutional constraints and loosen the bonds that entrap us in a certain so social station. Um, so escaping those, those confining and limiting definitions of structures uh, that, that prevent us from a full understanding of actual experience, right? From a full kind of empathic response um, to the things that we're witnessing, right? This isn't the news, right? As, as Williams pointed out, right? No one goes to poetry for the news, but men die horribly every day for a lack of what is found there, as he said, right? Ha ha. Um, so I wanted to close with a couple of examples um, of a somewhat looser definition of witness of trauma, right? And I want to use um, two authors in particular, Denez Smith um, and Claudia Rankin, um, both of whom have had books that came out in the last two years, um, both of whom are African-American um, and are responding not to particular instances of war or conflict or violence or anything. They are responding instead, and I would say this is the first place that we should uh, sort of expand our definition of experience. They're responding instead to the just insidious awfulness of the sort of racist experience that they live through every day, right? Uh, and I don't think that it is asking too much to expand our definition of witness to include that level of awfulness, right? This is something, and if we look at the parallels to traditional poetry of witness, uh, Milos, Paul Ceylon, um, you know, through, uh, you know, Adorno, um, the, the, the taint of the awfulness permeates the entire culture, and it does so through the language. Right. This is why Ceylon, uh, German, who moves to France after the Holocaust, writes in French. Because German had been so corrupted by the Nazis and by the Holocaust that he couldn't write in that language anymore. It was, it was that tainted. Um, and the same sort of taint um, exists uh, in ways uh, in, in our own language. Um, and, and race is one of the ways um, that that taint manifests itself in racism. Um, so, so two brief sections um, from their books to, to demonstrate how this sort of witness captures experience, right? And how the language captures the, the lived quality authentically of that experience. So me and the boys ride out to smoke with Daryl because Daryl got that fire and everything else, a blunt, a backseat, a black, and enough music to remind us we were raised black in an era where our skin and sex is a time bomb waiting to catapult us towards the sun. I am not yet bold enough to call these boys beautiful. I am an actor. I know how to blend in, look normal. 
I know the pronouns to use when I talk about who bones who in my back seat. I know there is never a proper age to burn the closet down, but I want to kiss these boys, half enjoy, half to touch them before we are good meat for some police dog, before we gamble with summer and lose, gunned down by an almost brother, a play cousin, luck down the drain with the blood. If there is a, or in spite of, God, let my small brown lips know their full brown lips before I rot. Let us slow dance in the moonlight, and later, from behind, let us sway until we fade into a brown and endless light. So that's Denez Smith uh, from his book, Insert Boy. Um, and we don't see in that necessarily the same overt violence that we see in Wilfred Owen, or in some Sassoon, or in other traditionally considered poets of witness. But we certainly see the violence of what language does in this culture, right? And Claudia Rankin, uh, whose book Citizen and American Lyric uh, covers uh, a lot of the same subjects, but in really different ways. I mean, you can hear um, just in the, the rhythm, the poetic quality of Denez Smith, right? He is a, a poet who is, uh, you know, he's writing for sound. These are beautifully rendered lines um, of you know, intense lyric imagery, um, as well as kind of cutting indictments of the system that produces such violence, right? Uh, Rankin takes a different tack. Um, these are, they're, they're all prose poems, right? So, so they look like prose, but they are as condensed and tightly rendered um, as poetry. Um, so this is just an example. Not long ago, you were in a room where someone asked the philosopher, notice what she's done there. Not long ago, you are in a room, right? She's putting the reader immediately into the position of witness, right? Using that second person pronoun. I'm not in a room, but she forces me into that room, right? I have to live the experience as she lives the experience, right? Not long ago, you were in a room where someone asks the philosopher, Judith Butler, what makes language hurtful? You can feel everyone lean in. Our very being exposes us uh, to the address of another, she answers. Our very being exposes us to the address of another, she answers. We suffer from the condition of being addressable. Our emotional openness, she adds, is carried by our addressability. Language navigates this. For so long, you thought the ambition of racist language was to denigrate and erase you as a person. After considering Butler's remarks, you begin to understand yourself as rendered hyper-visible in the face of such language acts. Language that feels hurtful is intended to exploit all the ways that you are, pre are, that you are present. Your alertness, your openness, and your desire to engage actually demand your presence, your looking up, your talking back, and as insane as it is, saying please. So that's Claudia Rankin from her book, Citizen. Uh, a book that avoids any sort of emotional pitch, which makes it even more awful, because it is 175 pages of just sitting there and taking it, right? The racism, the sexism, every day, in every situation, right? She's an academic. Uh, and you know, would get kicked off of campus for not having her security, you know, for having her campus ID, 
she taught there for nine years, right? It's not, it's, well, th there's no rationale for, for that kind of action, right? Um, so her book just keeps us and holds us in that position until we understand, right? And understanding is awful, right? Being able to experience her experience is awful, right? Reading Denez Smith's book, um, which have some really uncomfortable sections, right, is awful, right? But because it's effective poetry of witness, we are prevented from being passive, right? By living that awfulness as they present it, we are put into that position, not just so that we understand, but so we act, right? And this is what primarily theopoetics is looking for, the ability to read a new other experience, right? And therefore to act. I'm not entirely sure how all that works. As I said, this is research in progress. Um, I get to give another talk later in the semester to the faculty um, in this room in November. So hopefully I'll have some more of it worked out uh, by then. Uh, if, well, not if not, I won't. Um, I'll just have more questions. Um, but I, I am interested in other people who are interested in such things. Um, I'd really love to form a reading group, a discussion group. Um, I won't call it a small group because um, that's not what we're after. Um, we'll come up with some sort of different terminology. Um, a a medium-sized group. Um, <laughs> a, a coterie. A coterie. That's a good word. Let's go with a coterie. Um, uh, folks who are interested in this. I know I've got Hannah. Where's Hannah? Hannah Cobb already on board. Um, I talked to Karen. Uh, today, and, and Karen's very excited. Um, I welcome input, and I'm no expert, right? I'm not going to lead discussions on the subject. I'm interested in conversations on the subject, right? And sometimes I won't even talk. I'll just listen to people be smart um, and ask questions. That's, that's what I'm interested in. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can email me at my campus address. Um, you can come up here and put your name and email address on my, uh, this thing. What do we call this? paper, uh, and, and we'll figure out a time where our coterie can gather uh, and, and have these discussions further. So thanks. Is this, this on? It is on. Uh, so these guys have a few minutes to, to answer questions. If you would like to answer questions, we can do that. Uh, so, and my job is just to say, Questions? <laughs> I'll, I'll, why don't I do the repeating the question thing for the, the tape? So it'll keep me busy. Yeah, if you don't have any questions, there, I believe, are still cookies. <laughs> That's perfectly acceptable alternative to questions. Was there was there a sense that? Um, Christianity was either irrelevant 
or there or you know there may have been sort of a nostalgia for sort of a Christian basis for this pacifism. So that's first part of the question. Um, Tom, I get the feeling in Forche's quote that she believes we live in a post-Christian era. Um, is she nostalgic for some sort of Christian belief or universality or anything like that? Um, so simply, uh, not nostalgia for any kind of Christian um, basis, except for largely non-pacifist people, like T.S. Eliot wants um, a new, renewed Christian society to come out, and some of the reconstruction of Europe has this nostalgia for an ancient Christendom. But the pacifism that emerges, there are many people who were Christians and pacifists who were part of the peace movement, some like Quakers, part of Anabaptist-type churches, that is sustained. For many of them, effectiveness became the big uh, linchpin. When it felt like pacifism or nonviolence was no longer effective, many people were no longer part of the peace movement. Vera Britton is an interesting case in that she actually becomes more deeply Christian as she retains her pacifism through the war and ceases to see it as a matter of effectiveness but as faithfulness. And so um, it, she actually looks ahead towards what happens today in the way that um, people like Hauerwas and John Howard Yoder talk about pacifism not as a matter of a strategy for ending war but as a, an instance of faithfulness to Christ. And so that's the direction that it goes in. For many people in the 30s that I've been reading, um, it's, there's usually a kind of a fusion. They sort of appeal to Jesus, but it's not much of an actual Christian pacifism. It's sort of Christians who happen to be pacifists, and that m amounts to something different. Um, yeah, I'd say for Fouché and, uh, I mean, probably for a lot of writers, there is a, a sort of nostalgia for what, whatever they think Christianity represented that, that held things together. But there's also a real high awareness of the other things that Christianity did and led to and what the church has done um, and what the church continues to do in parts of the world um, and here, for that matter. Um, and so, like, when she says things like the language of religion therefore becomes quite important in the supposedly secular century for religion traditionally makes claims for universality and unimpeachable truth, she doesn't say or won't go as far as saying because religion has the language of unimpeachable truth, right? Um, but I think there is a, a pretty, Josh and I were talking about this this morning, actually, uh, to some extent, um, that there is a, a sense that if there is no authority, what is there, right? And we've spent a good part of the 20th century and the early 21st century tearing down authority structures. Um, and a lot of good has come from that, right? Um, but also the question, now what? There has to be something. Um, and, and so I think a lot of discussion is, is centered in that direction. Like, what, what do we do with these structures? Uh, how do we rebuild these structures um, in ways that are, uh, and, and this is something that, that Theopoetics is, is, is overtly concerned with, is how do we rebuild these structures in a way that is inclusive and positive and open? Short question. Thinking about the, your use of the term witness, um, 
I'm thinking of witness as both a viewer, right, and the sign of a message. So in the medieval context, and earlier Christians used, I mean, the word witness and martyr are the same thing, right? So martyrdom and witness are the same thing. So in your sort of analysis or in your poetry, have you thought about that both functions of witness, the both seeing and the function of speaking being a sign of a certain message? And that's all enmeshed too also with the idea of martyrdom and, and a sense of self-sacrifice. That's a big one, you go. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Um, I mean, I guess I've said a few times that for, uh, for Shea and for some of the writers I've looked at, it, it does have to do with their bodies. Their bodies having experienced this thing means the experience, the trauma, experienced war. That is the basis of that capacity to witness. I think in the cases that we're talking about, because what we're dealing with is language, once martyrdom to the point of death has occurred, there is no linguistic expression. And so I don't know quite how that all goes together. It's something I need to be sensitive to, though, that in if I'm tapping into sort of theological resources to know that the ultimate witness is martyrdom um, and is especially true of ancient Christian peace witness is to be killed in the arena or killed in these other settings for your faith. Um, those people didn't leave behind, in most cases, a legacy of speech. They left behind the witness of their dead body for the resurrection. And so um, I would need to think about how can literature unto death happen? I will also just say, um, <laughs> but Tom's a poet, so he's going to have to do that. Um, so, I mean, the other thing I would just add is there were a lot of people, when Virginia Woolf died, she killed herself, and um, Vera Britton was one of the first people to write a um, a kind of obituary in which she said, this is the result of war. This was a death because of war. This is her witness. She called her a martyr in that sense. Um, lots of other people said that's a complete, you know, uh, exploitation of Virginia Woolf's death from insanity and other reasons. But, um, but that's at least one direction I'd take that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a whole lot. Um, I mean, that's a... I mean, from as a, as a poet... Like I hope not, <laughs> but but if it, you know, in the same way, if you look at uh, a Robert Lowell or a Sylvia Plath or an Anne Sexton um, or or other writers, Kate Chopin or or folks, you know, largely women um, who who committed suicide, um, you know, I don't. It'd be really interesting to look at those as acts of, but suicide is 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 so much is so fraught. Right, because how do you call that martyrdom? Um, but certainly, their poems witness to the same sorts of, you know, inverted power structures and awfulness, uh, you know, in the form of sexual trauma and abuse, um, and ongoing misogyny, um, and just the kind of lived experience of, you know, their their domestic situation. Um, but yeah, I think martyrdom might be a step too far to apply that, you know, to give that label. Um, but also maybe not. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be very curious to, to read more. Should we take one last question here? That still. Um, this is a question for Tom. Uh, I was wondering, so you're talking about theopoetics and in that instance, and then um, the poetry of witness being the one explicitly more towards events of tragedy. And then in the case of the modern theopoetic attempts, you were saying that some of them are falling flat. And I was wondering if, um, oh. yes, yeah, so I was wondering if you see that 
possibly be the poetry of witness, combining with theology and going through a tragic event and then your experiences with God, like if the mixing of that between the two is where you would see it becoming out as more powerful. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some really interesting direct examples of writers wrestling with that, um, of, uh, you know, writers of profound faith who, who live through um, trauma, who, who come out of that trauma, whatever shape it might take. Um, I mean, obviously, their, their faith is going to be changed in some way. Um, and they, so they respond to that in, in you know, very diverse ways. Um, but always, uh, you know, interesting and, and the work that they write. And um, I think of a, a, a really good example might be somebody like um, William Everson, um, who was uh, a late modern, uh, he was a young young poet in the late modern period, um, and was just in San Francisco, um, and was generally dissatisfied with most things. Uh, you know, life was, um, you know, but th but there's no trauma there either. There's just kind of this dissatisfaction. Um, but he enters the Franciscan monastery, and he's a monk for eight years, um, and. Uh, then comes out and starts writing poetry again, kind of a la Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, and, and the poetry is significantly different um, because there is, through that period, uh, a, a newly developed sense of God and who God is and how God functions in his life. And he's writing from, from that perspective. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, and even in, um, you know, in Denez Smith, who, who grew up in a, in a, in a Christian household. Um, he's constantly wrestling with what is the nature of God given the awfulness of this reality. Um, and, and, and so in those poems, I think we see kind of a direct exploration of those theopoetic ideas. Um, yeah, and so sometimes the, those are the really good examples, I think, of, of how those things interact with each other. Thanks, everybody. Um, Tom Carraway, Casey Andrews. There are more cookies and little sliced fruits. And you should take some on the way out or mill about, ask some questions to these guys. They'll be hanging around for a little while. Thanks very much for coming out. <laughs>